Ready to rock? Okay, here we go. Take a big breath. This is the last uh, series, the last kind of installment of um, the third and part, boy, the third and final part of a three-week series about Christians in relationship. That's what we've been talking about. It's called Becoming One. This is the essential premise that we've been exploring for the last three weeks. Our relationships with others should reflect God's relationship with us. Our relationship with others should reflect, we're Christians, should reflect God's relationship with us. And the Bible clearly reveals God's relationship with God's people to be a covenantal relationship, not a contractual relationship. In other words, the nature of God's love for people is unconditional. That means that God's love for us is not based on, it's not dependent upon, it's not conditioned upon anything that we've done or haven't done. It's not a contract. We live in a world of contracts. Contracts are conditional promises. You do your part, I'll do my part. You don't do your part, I won't do my part. If that's a contract, that's not the nature of the love of God. The nature of the love of God is covenantal. It is an unconditional promise. We receive, or I should say the promise is extended to us whether we do our part or not. It's a covenant. So we can say based on what the Bible reveals to us about God's love that God's love is extended to us no matter what we've done or what we haven't done in the past. And this is typically the way we talk about it um, in Christian teachings. We talk about how God's love is present to us available to us no matter what we've done in the past. And that's good news. That is the gospel. But I would say that the message of unconditional love is even better than that. It's even bigger than that because not only is God's love available for you today and not only is it not conditioned or dependent upon what you've done or you haven't done in the past, but God's love for you today is not conditioned upon or dependent upon anything that you will do or maybe won't do in the future. God loves you no matter what you've done or what you haven't done. And we might say it like this, God's going to love you no matter what you do or no matter what you don't do. The love of God is covering me in my present. It is not dependent upon my past. And it's not even dependent upon my future. How can that be? Because it's unconditional love. It is unconditional. It is undependent on anything that I do. God's love for us is unconditional. It reaches back to our past and it covers it. It also extends beyond our future and it covers that. God's love is not affected by your past or by your future. Okay. Now, this is not to say, careful here, because this is not to say that God loves everything you do, right? It's not to say God loves everything you do, nor, is this, uh, nor am I saying that what we do doesn't matter, because it does matter, nor am I saying that there aren't natural consequences to our actions, because there are. Some of them are negative and some of them are positive. What I'm saying is God is a good parent, so he loves his kids no matter what. Okay, It doesn't change what they do. He may not like what they do, but it doesn't change his love for them. I'm doing business with somebody in another city, and uh, we were um, writing emails. We've been working back and forth for a couple of months now, and somewhere along the way, she discovers I'm a Christian. And so 
In an email about financial details, she asks me to pray for her son, who was just arrested in another state and is facing all kinds of prison time. She wrote this, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with in my life. I thought we were doing business, and this is what she drops, right? This is the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with in my life. Now, you can imagine she's unhappy about what happened, and clearly there are going to be natural consequences to what happened. In this case, they're negative. But you also, you know, right, that this doesn't change the way she feels about her son, and it doesn't change her love for her son, right? That's why she's broken, because she loves her son, and nothing that he does is going to change the fact that he's her son and she loves him. Jesus explicitly says in Matthew 7 that God is a good father. He loves to give good gifts to his children. Now, we have been created in his image, so we have free agency. We can make choices. We can choose to ignore God's love. We can choose even to mock God's love. We can miss out on God's love. We can refuse God's love. We can kind of exit ourselves from the benefits of God's love, but we cannot change the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Right? We can't change that fact. So today's sermon is rooted theologically in the concept of God's unending and un, un, unending love, unchanging grace. And I want us today to think more about the future than the past. That's what I'm encouraging us. Let's think more about the future than the past. I'm going to focus on God's love for us in the future. I'm going to focus on what we might call future grace, the grace that is for us and extended to us even out in the future. Not just grace for the past, which is what we typically talk about, but grace for tomorrow and for the next day and for the next day and the day after that. And what I want to do is talk about how our relationships with others might reflect this element of God's relationship with us. You follow me? I want to talk about how our relationships with others could reflect this future love element of God's love for us, this future grace aspect of God's love for us. Okay, this is a concept, this love for us in the future. This concept is all throughout Scripture. Here's one example, Jeremiah 31. It's on page um, 547 in your Bible, if you'd like to try to find it real quick. Page 547, this is the prophet Jeremiah, one of the major Old Testament prophets. He has the unfortunate, in my view, uh, call to preach to a rebellious people during a time of absolute brokenness. Um, he gets the call, right? It's a, it's a terrible season in the history of the people of Israel. And Jeremiah is the one that is charged to speak the words of God to the people. Uh, they are a devastated people at this time. This is what he says to them, Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of... So what, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the future restoration of the, of the people. Everything around them is devastated, but Jeremiah is the voice saying, God's going to put it all back together in the future. Okay. At that time, he says, verse 1, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. You hear the echo of the original covenant. You will be my people. I'll be your God. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Then Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 3, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. 
I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. So we have a reminder about God's love in the past, and we have this promise of God's love in the future. Let me just point out three quick details about this verse. The first detail is this. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That is a love that doesn't end, which is to say it extends into the future. One informal translation of this verse puts it like this. I have always loved you, and I always will. Second detail, I've drawn you, or I've pulled you with, and in English it's translated, loving kindness. This, in Hebrew, is this super powerful word, is the word hesed, often translated loving. The word is a, it characterizes, it describes the nature of God's love. It's often translated loving kindness. It's translated sometimes merciful goodness. This is God's affection, God's intent towards you, God's emotion towards you. It's his, his, his head. I have drawn you, I've pulled you with loving kindness. In other words, God doesn't threaten us to himself. God doesn't say, get over here. He doesn't do that. He draws us to himself. He, he pulls us to himself. He woos us to himself with what? With his goodness, right? And then a third detail about this passage. Did you notice that God calls Israel a unique name here? God calls Israel, which, by the way, has abandoned God, has been unfaithful to God, has played the role of the harlot. He calls them virgin Israel. God sees them as pure. His love for Israel is unaffected by their sin. Let me say that again. His love is unaffected by their sin. The people's rebellion against God has had natural consequences. Their life is a miserable, painful mess. But in God's eyes and in God's heart, they are pure and beautiful because of his great love for them. Their sin hasn't changed the way he feels about them. He still loves them. He still is drawing them to himself. Eugene Peterson, a Presbyterian pastor, died a few years ago. He wrote this beautiful paraphrase, kind of a poetic modern language paraphrase of the Bible. It's called The Message. He treats this verse, Jeremiah 31.3, like this. I've never quit loving you, and I never will. Expect love, love, and more love. It's beautiful. So the theological concept, friends, that we're talking about this morning is the nature of God's love, what God's love is like. And then here's a practical ramification of that truth for Christians. Because of the nature of God's love, specifically what we're talking about is how God's love is unconditional, God's love is everlasting. Because of that, the, here's my point this morning, the Christian maintains an optimistic, hopeful view of a person's future. Because of the love of God, the Christian maintains a hopeful perspective, a hopeful view on a person's future. If you are a Christian... If you're shaped by a biblical understanding of God's love, then you should be hopeful about the future of the person you're sitting next to this morning. You should be hopeful about their future. And here's the catch. Not because of them. 
(laughs) but because of God's everlasting love for them, because of God's future grace for them, because God's love for the person sitting next to you is yet unfulfilled. It is like still to be experienced. There's more of it to have. So there's always possibility for change. There's always possibility for health and wholeness and salvation. In other words, the Christian should never give up on someone because God has more and ongoing love and grace for that person. The Christian should never give up on someone because there's grace for that person in the future. We might say it like this, we're all in progress. Jesus says, my father is always at his work and I too am always working. So when when we talk about how Christians are called to be in relationship, we need to recognize that our theology, friends, that is the way we think about God, what we believe about God, specifically what we believe about God's love, it requires us to embrace a distinctly optimistic view of people and more specifically a distinctly hopeful view of their future. What's the view? The view is that change is possible. Growth is is possible. Restoration is possible because, not because of them, but because of God's future love for them, because of the future grace that is awaiting them. Because to put it really directly, God's not done with them yet. (laughs) God's not done with me yet. God's not done with you yet. You can elbow the person next to you if you need to and say, God's not done with me yet, right? Be patient here. God is not done with them yet. Now, we need to balance this with this. This doesn't mean that there aren't natural consequences to selfish and destructive behavior. So, if someone repeatedly insults me, I'm going to stop trusting them. Okay? I'm going to stop trusting them. If somebody repeatedly steals from my house, I'm going to stop inviting them into my house. This is not to say, this hopeful view of a person's future is not to say that I allow myself to be abused. But it is to say that I can't ever really give up on them. I can't ever really give up hope for their future. I may be positioned in such a way that it's really not going to be me that God uses to help them. But I cannot, as a Christian, I can't just give up on them. Right? i got to continue to remain hopeful for them because they're a work in progress because God has always loved them and God always will so I'm in the vet (laughs) beginning of the week and this very put together woman walks in the vet with a very put together dog and I'm sitting there and my dog starts barking at the very put together dog who remains stoic and just so undisturbed sitting next to his very distinguished and put together owner And I'm feeling like an absolute mess and disaster. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? So I try to smooth it over with my words, which is what I usually try to do. And uh, so I say, wow, (laughs) that's a real calm dog you got there, right there. Uh, How old is that dog? And she says, he's 14 years. And I said, oh, (laughs) she's 14 weeks. Yeah, she's a disaster, right? She's 14 weeks. This was my way of saying, please be patient with us, right? Please realize we're, we're an uncompleted project over here. 
Um, this was my way of saying, don't give up. <laughs> this might be the worst decision you ever made, but don't give up. <laughs> All right. here's, here's why this hopeful perspective on a person's future is so important. Ready? Here's why this hopeful perspective on a person's future is so important. This is not about us being nice to people. That's so anemic. Being hopeful about a person's future is actually critical to obeying the teachings of Jesus. This hopeful perspective is what enables Christians to make some of the more reckless promises that, frankly, we're instructed to make. And I don't mean reckless like destructive, but I mean reckless in the sense that, like, the risk-benefit analysis doesn't necessarily weigh out in my favor here. Jesus commands us to do some things that feel pretty reckless. My word. Here's an example. He commands us to love our enemies. It's not a suggestion. It's not for the really spiritual Christians. It's just for the Christians. You're supposed to love your enemies. The only way this is possible is, is because our hope, it's because of our hope uh, for God's ongoing grace toward all people. Because of our conviction that there's grace in the future even for our enemy. There's love extended in the future uh, even for our enemies. Man, if we don't believe that, I think it might be impossible to actually love your enemy. The, the stories of the martyrs going to their death are profound for several reasons. One is they are consumed with devotion to God. And the other is they actually begin to like demonstrate love for the very people that are killing them, right? Which is to say they have hope for their salvation. Right? They, they have hope for their future. They're not damning the people who are killing them, which is remarkable. Here's another example. Jesus commands us to love one another. We're, this is a reckless promise. We're instructed throughout the New Testament to share our life with the church uh, to share hospitality with one another, to share resources with one another, to serve one another, to forgive one another. And this won't work if you don't believe that we are all in progress together, that, that somehow together we can, we can do a better job pushing forward the kingdom of God than we can by ourselves. We can partner with God, right? We. So if, if I don't have a hopeful perspective on your future I'd, I'll just take care of it myself. I'll just do the best I can, right? But if I do have a hopeful perspective for your future, then I will actually be motivated to love you. I would hope you would be motivated to love me, to be part of our healing, to be part of our wholeness, to be part of our restoration, to be part of our becoming the people that God created us to be. And then a final example, and this is an extreme example of a hopeful perspective on a relationship. An extreme example of a hopeful perspective on a relationship, we call it marriage. <laughs> marriage. Because in a vow-bound relationship, a vow-bound relationship, like marriage, two people promise to love one another, not just on the day of their wedding. Have you noticed this? They promise to love one another into the future, which is, which is reckless because it's unknown. How do you analyze and quantify and establish that as a guarantee? You are making a promise to something that you can't actually know because life changes people. Pain changes people. So in all relationships, for the Christian, 
um, all relationships are shaped by this hopeful perspective. The hopeful perspective is rooted not in a person's potential, but it's rooted in the power of God to transform a person, to change a person, to make a person whole. And then the more significant the relationship, I would say the more reckless the promise. Like, is it a relationship that you have with a fellow member of of our church? Well, you're asked to make a relatively reckless promise to them, which is to share life with them, to rejoice with them when they're happy, to grieve with them when they're sad, even if you're not sad, but you're going to enter into that. You're going to promise to be there for them. You're going to support them. You may share your finances with them. You may loan them your car or take care of their kids. Or then in an extreme relationship like marriage, if you're married, you make the reckless promise to love and remain faithful in sickness and health, poverty and plenty. And not just today, which is relatively known, but forever, like your whole life, that is no conservative promise. That's a, that's a reckless promise. But friends, that's what makes Christian marriage such a powerful force in bringing the kingdom of God to earth. That's what makes Christian marriage such a powerful force in bringing the reign, the lordship of God into a chaotic world, into bringing the peace of God into a broken place. Christian marriage declares publicly, I'm going to love this person, this person right here. I'm going to love this person for the rest of my life. I'm announcing publicly to all who are here my intent to obey the teachings of Jesus within this committed community of two people. This specific person, similarly, this is what makes the Christian church such a powerful force in bringing the kingdom of God to the earth, in bringing the reign of God into a chaotic place, in bringing the peace of God into a broken place. Christians committed to a local church are declaring publicly, I'm going to love these people. I'm going to pledge to obey the teachings of Jesus and the church within this community of these specific people. Some of them I don't even know. Some of them I know and I don't especially like, right? But this is going to be the place, the laboratory, the school, the workshop in which I work out my salvation, in which I obey the teachings of Jesus in real life, not some theoretical, hypothetical, overly spiritualized kind of place that doesn't really involve real people. Is it an extreme relationship? It is if you're a Christian because, in the sense, you are called to mirror the love of Christ for the world in your relationships with others. So that's the big idea for today. And that's the big idea. What's the big idea? God's everlasting love, God's future grace, moving or motivating Christians to embrace a perspective on relationships that is hopeful. I can be hopeful about the future of the person sitting next to me because God's grace is in the future for them. God's grace, God's love is out out ahead. Good. I hope that was clear. Let me wrap this up by just tossing in three more truths that are rooted in this idea. They are rooted in this main idea. Each one of these could probably be a longer teaching, but I just want to give you the essential truth and hope that it will resonate with some of you and that you can chew on this for a bit. Maybe one of these helps you more than another. Here's the first of three. For the Christian in relationship, it's not what, it's who. Okay? For the Christian in relationship, it's not what, it's who. 
What I mean by that is this. There's this huge pressure to objectify people, to treat people as things, not persons. And that is because it is easier to dismiss a thing. It is easier to hate a thing. It is easier to go to war against a thing. It is easier to use a thing. If you objectify someone, they become less than a person. They become a thing. It's the liberals. It's the Chinese. It's the immigrants. It's those from that neighborhood. It's people from that generation. But God doesn't objectify us. God doesn't treat us as what's, as things. God treats us as who's, as people. Why? Because he loves us and he wants a relationship with us. But one of the risks of being in relationship with a person is that that person might not reciprocate. Loving someone means you're treating them like a person, not a thing. But a person might choose not to respond to your love the way you want them to, right? A person's response to your love, you might actually love them. And they might respond to your love with rejection, with criticism. Their response might be hurtful. We've seen this before right here. Jesus loved the world, and we rejected his love. But he kept loving us. The expression of his love after his rejection was forgiveness. And in forgiving us, among other things, he maintained our personhood. He, he maintained our dignity as people. He could have written us off as things. Oh, those monsters, those ungrateful sinners. But he doesn't. He forgives us, and in forgiving us, he treats us like people. He preserves our humanity. He preserves our dignity. We cannot close ourselves off to a person's response to our love because as soon as we do that, our relationship becomes self-centered, self-serving. It objectifies the other. Now they exist only for me. I'm hearing a lot about surrounding yourself with people who encourage you, surrounding yourself with people who believe in you, who will help you get to that next level in your business. And I understand where that's coming from, and it's not necessarily all bad, but I want to say to the Christian, please be careful with that kind of thinking. Because the Christian, as Christians, we're called to love people, not use them as objects to platform our own success. Right? We need to see and relate to a person as a person, as a who, not as a what, no matter what their response If you're confused, we look to Christ. Right. For the Christian in relationship, it's not about what, it's who. It's who. Secondly, for the Christian in relationships, it's not about you or me. It's about us. Okay? In the context of a community, even more intensely in the context of a house or a home, even more intensely in the context of a marriage, it is easy to fall into you or me thinking, you or me language. There's your part and there's my part. There's your jobs 
and there's my jobs. Some of us wrestle with gender-related roles like that's for a woman to do, this is for a man to do. This kind of thinking, it can become really individualistic and then it becomes defensive. I did my part. I cooked and cleaned three days in a row. When are you, right? When are you going to do your part? Now, asterisks, real life, clearly, there needs to be some organization, right? There needs to be some structure. There needs to be some order to any community. We need to figure this out. But the Christian approach to the division of labor is to come at the challenge not as you or me, but as us. As us. How should we handle this challenge? Because my basic fundamental understanding is that I am in relationship with you. So how should we do this? How should we face this challenge? What's the best way for us to address this? Maybe one person's better at handling finances than the other. Maybe uh, one person is, you know, enjoys cooking and the other doesn't or less so. Maybe one person's just simply more willing to mow the lawn. But if it degenerates into your part, my part, Where's the sacrifice? Where's the mutual submission? Where's the love in action? Paul writes to the Philippians saying, you all, a bunch of Christians in this city called Philippi, you should all consider others better than yourself. In another place, he compares the church to the human body. He says, we're all different body parts. Some are eyes, some are ears, some are hands, some are feet. And then he says, can one part like the eye say to another part like the elbow, I don't need you? His point is that we all play a critical role, and he's coming at this whole Christians in relationship thing, not as you and me, but as us. So whatever I do in my community, whatever I do in my home, whatever role I fulfill in my marriage it should be filtered with this question. What's best for us? What's best for us? How can I serve as part of us? How can we be served by me? What I'm trying to say, the second kind of offshoot, is for the Christian in relationship, it's not about you and me. It's about us. It just simply has to be about us. Here's a final thought. For the Christian in relationship, it's not fixed, it's dynamic. It's not fixed, it's not in cement, it's not in its final situation, it's dynamic. Things always change, people change, roles and responsibilities are going to change. In some seasons, I've been the morning driver to school. In other seasons, Carmen's been the morning driver to school. Early in our relationship, she paid the bills. Currently, I'm paying the bills. I hope it changes, right? It would probably be better. <laughs> changes in life happen. As soon as we figure out one thing, we're like, oh, we got it. Woo, something changes, right? There's a new job. There's a new kid. There's a loss. There's a, a, a change happens. Something that reminds us, oh, man, I'm actually not in control. And this is good. This is good because it's not fixed. For the Christian in relationship, it's not fixed. It's not about, let me get the ducks all in a row, freeze it. 
No, it's dynamic. It's so good. Why is it good? Because this whole life, all of these relationships, all of the struggles, all of the joys, it's all part of God's plan to reveal his everlasting love to all of us to carry us through pain to form us in times of trials, to work even through us to restore all things to their intended purpose. Amen. Are things hard right now? Do you feel stuck? Here's my, here's my advice. Here's my counsel. Pour yourself into your relationship with Jesus. Pour yourself into your relationship with Jesus. This is not fixed. It's dynamic. Do you feel stuck? Pour yourself into your relationship with Jesus. This is not fixed. This is dynamic. Do you feel great right now? Do you wish you could just take a picture of life right now and keep it like this because it's so good? This is my, not too many of you, huh? I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> but a few of you are like, I kind of don't want to. If this is you, my counsel is the same. Pour your life into your relationship with Jesus. This will change. This is not fixed. It's not even meant to be fixed. Set permanently. It's dynamic. God is inviting us into a deeper experience with his everlasting love. He's inviting us into a hopeful future that is full of grace, into his mission to restore all things, and then we get to be a part of that. And it involves our communities, it involves our friendships, it involves our houses, our homes. If we're married, it involves our marriage. Our spirituality absolutely should make a difference on all of those levels. It's all part of this amazing journey of becoming one with God. Amen? It's all part of this. All of these relationships, the bigger picture, these are all real and they all matter and the details are significant, but the bigger picture is they're all shaping us into the person that we are to become. They're all bringing all of us together in some mysterious, amazing way into the unity with God, the true lover of our souls. Amen? Let's pray together. Thanks, Lord, for a few weeks to focus on the stuff that we just deal with and the stuff that is our context. Day in and day out, I pray for your vision for the relationships that make up our life. That our faith in you would impact, shape, and, and like color. Give us perspective on um, relationships with our friends, with our community members here, with the people we work with, and then those more intimate relationships, our family members. We pray that you would enable us to reflect your love. Give people a glimpse of the love that you have extended to us. Um, would you help us? Would you help us to trust and follow Jesus where it matters most? In Jesus' name, amen.